Psalm 72, where Paul was reading for us earlier this morning, I've entitled the message is Ministry, Suffering, Judgment, and Kingdom. This is not a Christmas message. In some ways it is, in some ways it isn't. Psalm 72 this morning, picking it up in verse 15. And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain on the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass on the earth. His name shall endure forever, and his name shall continue as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him, and all nations will call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Of the 150 Psalms, David wrote probably half of them. And as we finish Psalm 72, verse 20, what we have is the end of the second book of the Psalms. Uh, 1 through 41 is the first section. All of those, I believe, were written by David. 42 to 72 is where we're concluding this morning. This is book two. And um, I think it's timely because we'll be getting more into uh, messages about this time of year. And uh, the purpose as we go through, our goal, as we make our way through God's word, is again remembering the scripture that was recorded in Hebrews. Jesus himself said that the volume of this book that you hold in your hands is all about him, even the Psalms. As a matter of fact, Psalm 69, next to Psalm 22, which would be number one, has more references that are quoted in the New Testament than any other psalm, and that's saying a lot. So we have Psalm 22, that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And many scriptures fulfilled. But then we have Psalm 69, and what we're going to find in Psalm 69 this morning is his ministry, his suffering, and his judgment, those three. We're going to take all from Psalm 69 that are fulfilled in the New Testament. And then his kingdom is where Paul read, and that's in Psalm 72. All of Psalm 72 is the reign of the Messiah. So we're going to be looking at an overview this morning, uh, beginning with uh, Psalm 69. So if you turn back to that, let me just draw your attention to verses 8 and 9, where... David, writing, not realizing that he's prophesying, says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Uh, None of Jesus' brothers or sisters believed on him until after the resurrection. And then he says, because the zeal of your house has eaten me up and the reproach of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This verse right here is fulfilled in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And I'm going to have you turn there at this time. I would never, in just reading the Psalms, if I were just reading through it, would have come to the conviction that um, this would have been fulfilled and actually quoted in John's Gospel, chapter 2. If you look at verse 13, if you were a Jew, you would have been been required to... um, make an annual trip three times a year to Jerusalem. And one of the feasts was the Feast of Passover, probably the most important. So Jesus would have been there with his family members along with other Jewish families to come to Jerusalem. 
So in verse 13, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to the temple. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers, notice, doing business. And when he made a whip of cord and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured over the money changers and overturned their tables, he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Now here it is. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. They're watching this event unfold. Many people would never believe Jesus would ever do such a thing. Get upset, make a whip, go in and clean house at a temple and make such a, a racket and commotion. But it was at that moment the Holy Spirit comes down upon these guys. And my Bible has in a cross-reference here, Psalm 69, verse 9. And it's being fulfilled here. But David prophesied, having no idea that in the future Jesus would actually go into the temple as we carry this on, the, the problem and the reason that upset him so much, if you go back to verse 14, the way it worked, if you came from another country, and you would go to buy your lamb, that was what was required. If you were poor, you could buy some turtle doves if you didn't have enough money, and they were less expensive. But you couldn't use your own currency. It had to be exchanged into the shekel temple. So whatever your currency was, it needed to be changed. Well, here's where the racket came in. Uh, They would make the exchange rate different at this time of year. They would jack up the prices. So it says in verse 14, when you go back to it, they were doing business. This is a racket that's going on here. And in um, Matthew's account of the same event, Jesus said to him, and it's not recorded here, he says, my house will be a house of prayer but you have made it into a den of thieves. They came there, they were supposed to go, go to, to uh, the sanctuary to worship the Lord. And what they were simply doing is they were uh, in it for the money. Uh, the Pharisees, the chief priests are on down, were all in on it. And uh, they were padding their pockets because of this. Now, his ministry, what was Jesus's ministry? How did he model um, service to the Father? When he was teaching his disciples in Matthew 10, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he says, therefore, I want you to heal the sick and cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. And then he says this, freely you have received, freely give. The authority that I've given to you, I didn't charge you for it, was given to you freely. And I want to make sure that you freely make sure that it's given out. When you travel, I don't want you to take with you two tunics. Just take one. No staff. uh, Neither gold nor silver. If you get to somebody's house, they invite you in. Invite them in. And if the peace of the Lord is there, pray for them and say, I pray the peace of the Lord rests on this house. And let them provide for you. We're not, the, the, and it, it shouldn't be taken wrong here. The, the Bible teaches you shouldn't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. And that means that those that are in ministry, they should be compensated to pay their bills and so on and so forth. So don't misunderstand me. But it's the extravagance and the taking advantage of it that solicited this uh, dramatic response from the Lord. 
All right, a little sidetrack here this morning. And what troubles me in a lot of Calvary Chapel pastors, I think a lot of people in ministry are in it for all the right reasons. But let me just be honest this morning and say a whole lot of them aren't. One of the greatest turnoffs to the gospel in ministry is that in, in uh, the name of ministry or the Lord, they are, instead of feeding the flock, uh, gathering together with the purpose of worship and teaching God's word, the motive behind it is actually fleecing the flock. Now, it's sort of a play on words. If you're a lamb and you're, you're shearing them, well, instead of feeding them as a shepherd, no, they're fleecing them and getting whatever they can from them. Jesus was one of the most dramatic chapters in the Bible is Matthew 23. Read the whole thing. I mean, Jesus doesn't spare too many words what he's thinking about. Vipers, hypocrites, blind guides. In Matthew twenty-three thirteen, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, and you're not even going in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are going in. Why? He says, Woe to you, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make a long prayer. Therefore, you're going to receive the greater damnation. There are little old ladies and widows that are on their pension, their Social Security. They have very next to nothing. And um, they would take advantage even of a person in that situation. And it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder how many widows today that are just watching TV, love the Lord, want to be able to help out some way, uh, any way, and they start turning their channels, and they, they come across these prosperity teachers who tell them, well, if you'll just take that little bit of money that you have and sow it, uh, that seed faith, like the Bible says, it'll come back to you 100-fold. Well, my first problem with that is the motive in giving it in the first place. If the motive to give it is so you're going to get 100-fold back, you're missing it. The motive is that everything belongs to the Lord, and we give freely back to him, and we're just stewards. Everybody here, you don't own anything. Nothing. Zip, nada, zero. You're simply a steward. Even the gift that God has given to you. It says, uh, every good and perfect gift comes from where? It comes from above. So what credit can I take? I can't take any credit. If the Lord has blessed you financially, you're just a steward over that stuff. That's not yours. And uh, your stewardship, you'll give an account for someday. I also believe, as Paul the Apostle warned about a certain man named Alexander the the coppersmith, he went after him, talked about him openly, dropped his name, said, Lord, I pray against this guy. He did much damage to the gospel. He He withstood me trying to deliver the simple gospel. So, Lord, I pray you deal with him according. Give him what he... <laughs> Paul's prayer life for him. Look out, you know. Lord, go get him. And I wonder today, as I look around, I think there are Alexander Coppersmiths that should be made aware of. There's a lot of widows, a lot of people that are, I think, a little naive what the Bible teaches on this subject, and have become fleeced instead of fed. I'm going to drop some names here this morning and show some pictures. And I'm primarily headed towards if the issue was the zeal of my house has eaten me up. Why? Because they were merchandising. And they were using 
the Lord's name to make a buck. In 1987, Oral Roberts made a dramatic appeal. He says, unless he immediately gets $8 million, that God is going to kill him and take him home. Well, he ended up with over $9 million for that little stint. And um, I'll show you his house in just a minute here. He was a poor guy. And um, uh, I, when I travel, it's not up here so much, but um, the largest uh, TV ministry, Christian ministry in the world is TBN. And um, that's with Paul Crouch, who's no longer with us, but his, uh, his uh, organization is. And um, uh, Paul Crouch, I think we have um, his, uh, just his simple modest house. We'll put that up on the screen at this time. That's Paul's. And um, that's the biggest uh, one that's out there today. Um, Benny Hinn is known around the world for his large healing crusades. And while building his following, uh, Hinn has earned quite a bit of money. His annual intake is $200 million a year. Annual. Let me show you how Benny lives. This is a picture of Benny's place here. Is that different than the first one? Oh, here, that's his here, or one of them. On our last trip to Israel, I got talking. Um, I don't know how Benny Hinn came up in the subject. And my bus driver pulled me aside and says, Dwight, let me tell you a story. He says he was here just a little while ago with 10 buses. And he was going around asking some of the bus drivers if during his crusade that they might put it on a little uh, show for him and pretend that they had a bad leg or so on and so forth, that he'd compensate them for it accordingly. And he actually pulled me aside and he was telling me these stories. There hasn't been, as far as I know, anybody really confirmed that's ever been healed in any one of his crusades. So I have a problem with Mr. Benny Hinn. Um, uh, The next one on my list is Kenneth Copeland. Let me show you how Kenneth lives. He's also known as a prosperity teacher. He teaches word faith. He's a disciple of um, uh, Kenneth Hagin. And um, uh, Kenneth Copeland is part of a doctrine that we call name it and claim it. Some people have fun with it and call it blab it and grab it. Basically, what they're saying is you have power in your words. And if you have power in your words, then what you say is what you're going to get. So if you want a Cadillac, then all you have to do is just claim that Cadillac, and that Cadillac is yours. And then he'll say, let me um, give you a little proof of that. Let me show you his lifestyle and his living conditions. This is, is this Kenneth here? Is this a different one? No, this one's Kenneth. And um, uh, there's, there's a list that goes way, way too far on that I can't touch on all of them. Uh, Sreflo Dollar is a prosperity teacher. This is his home. He takes in millions there, so I guess we just showed that one. And um, I'm going to hurt some of the girls at this time, but I, she also is a prosperity teacher. That's Joyce Meyer. And um, she's well-known and, and loved by a lot of, a lot of gals. Uh, she, her income is, uh, uh, as of 2003, right around a million dollars. That's her salary year, and this is where she lives, here. All right, I think you're getting the point. The list could go on and on. But if Paul called out Alexander the coppersmith, then, um, and if we don't know what it is that caused the Lord to be so upset, that the zeal of his house has eaten him up. 
um, let it just be a warning. Don't ever give any money to any of these ministries. Just don't do it. I mean, if you would need a, a, a place to, to it, uh, there, I have a ski fund that you can, uh, I, I can get you at my email address. And, and uh, all right, you know, hopefully I'm just kidding. I live check to check just like you guys, just so you know. That's the truth. But what we've been, let me just tell you a personal story when this crept into Calvary. It's about 20 years back. It was at a pastor's conference. And Chuck got up. Ooh, he looks serious. And Chuck's not always looking serious. And he says, guys, I want to tell you. I looked at the parking lot coming into pastor's conference this year. I've seen more Porsches out there that I've ever seen more than downtown in uh, Huntington Beach. I said, what's going on? And then he paused for the longest time. Talk about an awkward moment. I watched one Porsche after another go. I don't know any pastors in Calvary Chapel that drive in Porsches, at least anymore. And he, didn't say, he didn't need to say much, but he got the point. And uh, Porsches are a big car for any of you who are from Southern California. They're their status symbol. If you drive a Porsche, then you're, you've made it, so to speak. And that's not what Chuck taught us, neither is it what our, our Lord taught us. He taught us freely. We have been given. But what I have has been freely given, and we freely give it away. And so look out for the charlatans. Don't be uh, warn the, the little old widow that is gullible to these guys just because they're on TV. And just say, don't do it. And they're in it for the wrong reason. Chuck coined a phrase that we hold to where God guides, he provides. I really believe that. And so we believe in tithes and offerings, but um, we don't pass the hat here or that. We believe that we have, uh, we let people know in a bulletin, you read how we take our offerings. There's boxes you can put it in if you feel that led to worship the Lord in tithing. And we'll leave it at that. All right, having said that, and we're talking about his ministry, in Psalm 69, the zeal of my house has eaten me up. That's what it's about. They were ripping off the people. And the disciples remembered, oh, yeah, that's it. That's why he's so upset. The zeal that he wanted this place to be a place where people worship God. We had a thing in our bulletin, I think it's still there, that um, we asked people not to uh, um, talk about business matters when they come to church. And don't, don't look at the place here as a place where you might be able to make a connection with somebody for business purposes. And we explained in there, that's not why we're here. We're here to worship the Lord. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? We're here to study his word. And then we're here to hang out and fellowship with one another and love on each other. Amen? That's it. If you want to do business is business. You should be doing your business, but not here. Amen or not? All right, we can move on. Paul said, it's the love of Christ that compels me, and it should be nothing other than that. Jesus saved my soul. I was going to hell. He set me free, gave me a peace in my life, and I want to tell people about it. And that's what Paul was saying. The love of Christ compels us. The reason Jesus came in, in the ministry we studied last week is to, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. So we had a study on angels last week, both kinds, the angelic and the demonic. First Timothy 1, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all exception that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says, I'm at the top of the heap. I'm number one. What? The apostle Paul? 
Yeah, that's how he looked at himself. We were in men's prayer yesterday. We were in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, pretty holy guy. I mean, one of the greatest prophets that I could think of in the Old Testament. But it begins in Isaiah 6 verse 1. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. High and lifted up, his train filled the temple. I saw seraphims and angels flying over me. And he says, woe is me. I am in big trouble. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I have seen a holy living God. And the, the, the point of that, Paul saying he is the chiefest of sinners, is because the Apostle Paul had a great walk with the Lord. He was close to the Lord. And when you're walking close with the Lord, you don't walk in pride. You walk humbly. And so what happened to Isaiah? Well, he was humbled really quick because he saw a holy God and it put him in his place really, really quick. All right, let's go on to his suffering. So the first part of it, Isaiah, Psalm 69, the zeal of his house has eaten me up. If we go back to Psalm 69, now if you look at 19 through 21, This also now is going to be a prophecy, but it's going to change from ministry to suffering. Verse 19 says, You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are before me. Reproach has broken my heart, and I'm full of heaviness. And I'm full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Verse 21. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, They gave me vinegar to drink. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27 in the New Testament, and we'll find the fulfillment of this. Of course, this is the cross. The one person that I didn't put up on the screen this morning was uh, the largest church in the country, Joel Olstein down in Houston, Texas, 48,000 people. And um, he's always painting the bright side, and a half, you get a half a gospel. And he's got a million-dollar smile. I, got a, I wonder what kind of toothpaste he uses anyway. You know, I just, man, I have a teeth that white. Just, just great. But if you're going to get the whole picture, then the Bible talks more about his suffering. Don't misunderstand me. He was anointed, it says, with the oil of gladness, our Lord Jesus. Somebody give me an amen with that? I think it would have been great walking with the Lord just day to day. But the whole picture was is that he was known from Isaiah, who describes him next best, as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Often in heaviness, verse 4 says, he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and he was afflicted. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. He was put to grief when you made his soul an offering for sin. In Psalm 69, David's writing away, and all of a sudden, uh, we're in Matthew chapter 27, and it's being fulfilled. If you look at verse 34, in chapter 27, verse 33 says they took him to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull where he was crucified. And they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, 
he would not drink. Now, there's twice this happened where he was offered something to drink. He wanted nothing to dull the experience that he was going to enter into. He was going to take on the full wrath of God, and uh, he did not want anything to uh, uh, temper or dampen what was about to take place. If you go down now to verse 45, it's about the sixth hour, and then there was darkness uh, over the land for the next three hours, and he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that fulfills Psalm 22, verse 1. And someone stood there, and when they heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it for him to drink. This time he accepted, because what he's about to say after that is it is finished. Psalm 22 says that his tongue clung to the top of his mouth. Something needed to loosen it. And in Psalm 69, verse 19 to 21, we have that being written. David didn't know what he was doing, but it was being fulfilled and quoted right here. So not only his ministry in Psalm 69, but we see his suffering uh, foretold what Jesus suffered on the cross, and he did it for me, and he did it for you. And it isn't always happy clappy. This time of year is some of the most difficult time of the years. I have memories that sting like crazy this time of year. One of my best friend, Bill Waters, went to be with the Lord about 10 years ago now, December 27th. Every Christmas comes by, that's what I think about. Reggie White died on the same day, by the way. And it was a great tsunami that took out hundreds, a couple hundred thousands of people. That all happened on one day. And um, we have mixed emotions. So to say it's always happy, clappy, that's not what the Bible teaches. Yeah, there's parts of it where the joy of the Lord is our strength. Somebody want to give me amen? Yeah, it's great singing Christmas carols, and we love it. And we love getting the presents. But better than getting the presents is having the presence. Amen? That satisfies the soul. So, Let's go on from there to Psalm, back to Psalm 69, verse 28. One more thing that we see in, that is being fulfilled as we want to see Jesus in the Bible in the book of Psalms. David is praying a prayer at this time against those who hate God. And concerning this prayer, we talked about it, if you want to, uh, learn more about it. You can get what we went through on Wednesday night on, on this. But in verse 28, speaking of those who are in opposition to God and in opposition to David, he says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. One commentator says, apparently there's a book of creation and when we are born, we're recorded in that book. And then he quotes Psalm 139 for his his uh, proof of that. He says, Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when yet there was none of them. Also there is a book of life for those who are saved, and there is also a book of works. And I'm just going to take a minute and go through all three quickly. Evidently here, whenever someone enters and is born in this world. There's this book of the living. 
And the book of the living is mentioned here in Psalm 69. There's also a book called, um, and this one will only be opened on the great day in Revelation 20 of of, uh, the white throne judgment. And I'll just quote it to you here. This is not for people that have accepted Christ. These are people who died in their sins and they're waiting for their judgment to come. Verse 20, verse 12, chapter 20. John says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books, plural, were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. So we have two books. One is the book of life. Another is books, plural. And the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books, plural, not the book of life, and according to their works. Paul Cameron told me yesterday in men's prayer that Robert Norlander died this week. And I've known him for years. Never met the man, only by reputation. And, um, of course, he's, he's always was in the paper. And um, all I could think of is what a surprise he's in for right now. All the words that he wrote all the articles against a creator, a God. Boy, does he know differently now. And so we, we read, that's not my notes, that just came off my memory from yesterday. But these books, for those who want their day in court, they're going to get it. But all the evidence is going to be there. The things that only were in your heart, they're written down too. They were never even spoken but they were there nonetheless. And then we have the book of life, different book. These are now those who will inherit eternal life. This gets a little complicated and interesting because one of the promises in Revelation 3, verse 5, to the church, he says to the believers, if you overcome, you're going to be clothed in white garment and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. My question is, if it's not possible to have it blotted out, why even make the statement? So it brings up this question. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father in heaven. Wow, that's great. But if you deny me before men, I will also deny you before my father in heaven. Revelation twenty fifteen. and whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This verse from Psalm 69 deals with judgment and the time of judgment. But you know, for right now, Jesus is not judging individually. Oh, I believe he's judging countries. I pray for our country right now. I think we're in big trouble. We just took a big left turn against our friend Israel. And guys, Genesis 12.3 is still there. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And I was telling the guys yesterday that a whole regiment in, in Jordan, trained by our forces, spent two years, equipped them fully, have now defected completely and gone over to ISIS and has caused the Golan. When we think of the Golan Heights, you usually think of way up north in Damascus. No, Golan runs all the way the border of Jordan. And that's now that, uh, which was being defended, 
That's gone. And um, I better get back to this because I could really get sidetracked on that. (laughs) Jesus in John 8 said, you people judge after the flesh. Jesus says, I judge no man, at least not yet. John eight sixteen. but yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone, but I and the Father, he has sent me. Let's turn to uh, John 5 in the New Testament so that you can see this. If you don't bring your Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew right in front of you there. I'll give you a second to get to it. Sometimes people think, oh, God's judging me because I did this or that thing that was wrong. Not necessarily. You do reap what you sow. But what the Bible teaches about Jesus judging now, we need to look what the scriptures tell us about it. In John chapter 5, in verse 22, it says, The Father judges no one. But he has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not pass, notice, into judgment, but is passed from death into life. And so we could read on, but I'm just going to leave it at that. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, Paul says God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, and he has given assurance of this to us all by raising him from the dead. There is going to be a judgment day that God will judge someday. But that will be um, uh, the great white throne judgment. But before I get to that, I need to um, have you turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 5, the judgment for the believers. It's called the great judgment seat of Christ. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Oh, let me read verse 8 for Betty this morning. We are confident, yes, well, pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Betty, that's for you. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He is talking to us now. The judgment seat needs to be understood in the, in the Greek here, and it's bima. A bima seat is like the Olympics. It's not has nothing to do with your sin. It has everything to do with the motive of your heart and why you do what you've done for the Lord. Is everybody kind of tracking with me right now? Remember Jesus said, when you do something good, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And then he explains why. He says, because if they see it, then you've already got your reward. But if you're doing it secretly, then your heavenly father who sees in secret, he's going to reward you openly. 
this judgment seat here, nothing to do with your sins. What was the motive? What you did when you gave? What was the purpose? See, that's what's going to be made manifest here. So what do we do? Well, we make it our aim to to be well-pleasing to the Lord. In other words, have the correct motive in ministry because it's going to be judged. And for further Bible study on that, just write down 1 Corinthians 3 because that is much more extensive. And for sake of time, I just have to leave it at that. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 25 for a different judgment. Matthew 25. This one has to happen, and it will happen at the end of the great tribulation period, which we see getting closer day by day. And if you're in Matthew 25, picking it up in verse 31. It talks about when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of his holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. He will gather all the nations before him and he will separate them one from another as a sheep divides his sheep from the goats. Well, what is this? Well, what we have here is Jesus Christ returning and he's about to establish his kingdom. But there are still people um, that took the mark of the beast during this period of time, never accepted Christ, and they're still alive. But we're about to enter into the thousand-year kingdom reign. So this now is getting into um, the judgment of the nations. There's got to be a separation. Those who didn't take the mark and those who did. Those who were on his right side, he said to those, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then he also said to those, verse 41, on his left hand, depart from me, you curse, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's a judgment. When does it take place? Right before the beginning of the 1,000-year millennial reign, which leads us to our last point this morning. Let's go back to Psalm 72 now, and I finally made it to our text, but we're almost done. Here, David, the whole psalm, my subtitle, says here, a psalm of Solomon, and let me tell you that because it's a title, uh, they made a boo-boo there, and there should be a psalm for Solomon. And um, I felt pretty adamant about it. And then I read McGee and he just came flat out and said, this is not a song of Solomon. This is a psalm to Solomon written by David because that's how it ended. The prayers of David, the son of Jedidiah, ended. So we want to give me an amen there? All right, so it doesn't really matter because the context, and I can feel this crescendo as David realizing, I just want to give God the glory for what he's done for me. One time, David wanted to build a house for the Lord. The Lord won't let him do it. He said, I'll tell you what, David, I'm going to build you a house. From your descendants, you're going to be called, Messiah is going to be called the son of David. And your kingdom, David, is going to last forever and ever and ever. And he's talking about David here. And this is just blowing David away. And so, as he concludes his psalms, you can almost feel that building. He shall live, verse 15. The gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer will be made continually. Daily he will be praised. 
there will be an abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountain. Surely that's not the case now. And those of the city will flourish like the grass. His name will continue forever. And his name shall continue as long as the sun. And men will be blessed in him and all nations shall call him blessed. So blessed be the Lord God of Israel who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayer of the Psalms of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Revelation 20, I'm going to have you look at three, and we'll only deal with three scriptures that deal with this. Much of the book of Isaiah deals with the 1,000-year kingdom millennial reign. But I'm going to have you uh, start by, let's make our way through Revelations chapters 2 and 3, just two verses in each one. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 as he's writing here to um, uh, the church of Thyatira. He warns them, but he says, to those who overcome, verse 26, hangs in there, and keeps my works until the end. Notice what he says. To him I will give power over the nations. They're going to rule and reign with him. And then Psalm 2 is quoted. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessel shall be broken to pieces, as I have also received from my Father. So we have that promise that the church, and that includes you, you're going to rule during the thousand years' reign. To what capacity? He'll let us know then. Look at chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 21. This is to the church of Laodicea. To him who overcomes... I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also came and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The last one is in Revelation 20. And this now is the beginning of the thousand-year reign. A little bit of business needs to be taken care of first. The devil who deceived him And verse 3 is thrown into the bottomless pit. Of course, many of us, and put a seal on him, and um, that he should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after this, he must be released for a little while. (laughs) And we wonder, you got him, Lord. He's changed up. Why would you let him go? Well, there's a reason for that, because he's not quite done. He's got one more duty for him yet to do. Verse 4, and then John says, I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. I saw the souls of those who had been, notice, interesting in these days, isn't it? Beheaded for the witness. Christians are being beheaded again. Ten years ago, if I would have quoted that, go, never in a million years. And yet, it's out there. We all know what I'm talking about. For the witness of Jesus and the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark in their forehead or on their hands. Notice, and they lived and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. Well, now we're back in Matthew 24. That's what he's talking about here. 
the sheep that are blessed that enter in at that judgment. Psalm 69, it's all about Jesus. It's about his ministry, how he got upset when religious, quote, people were fleecing the flock. We should too, without sinning. Talks about his suffering. No man suffered more than Jesus. Isaiah 52 tells us he was marred more than any man. And he carried literally the weight of the world on his shoulders. I really believe Jesus died of a broken heart. I really do. I don't think it was. They were surprised that he died that quickly. I think the scriptures back that up too. He's the only one worthy in Revelation chapter 6 to open this book that begins the whole seven-year tribulation period. The father had a book in his hand. And uh, it says no one was worthy to open the book or even to look on the book. And John began to weep uncontrollably. The thought that the, the redemption would never take place was more than John could handle. And the angel says, weep not, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's prevailed to open the book. He went up to the father and he took the book out of his hand and he opened it and judgment began. Psalm 69 teaches us about his ministry, his suffering, and um, also the judgments that are coming, but also his kingdom. And this this Christmas, as we get caught up with this, um, how many have had this question asked you this, this week? Are you ready? Are you ready? I got my hair cut this week, and I sat down in the chair. The first thing the gal asked me, I've been cutting my hair for 30 years. Are you ready? I took advantage of it. I just brought her up to date prophetically what's going on. Then I went down to the, to the Y for a quick workout, seeing some of my buddies. Are you ready? And I, of course, they're implying, do you have your Christmas shopping done, right? Well, when we first started in the Little White Church, I called this guy up. I couldn't run him down. I wanted to... I, He's a well-known in our community, and I won't, because I couldn't get a hold of him, I'm not going to use his name. But it's a great story, so I'll close with it. Um, we just had a sign out in the little white church, and all it said was, are you ready? And we left it at that. And I wasn't talking about Christmas. And all of a sudden, this, this big, fancy car drives up to the, the house behind the little white church and knock on the door and saw this guy, big mustache. And uh, he just looked at me. Stared at me. Says, I'm not ready. That's all he said. I was playing my guitar around the kitchen table. I said, come on in. Led him to Christ. Married him. Let me rephrase that. (laughs) (laughs) These days, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have to explain myself. I married him to a woman in another church in town. (laughs) And they're still walking with the Lord today. But it all came about with one question. Three little words. Are you ready? And he was extremely successful. I mean, one of the most successful men in our community. And um, at least worked for him. And he just says, I'm not. And his life has never been the same. They're still serving the Lord to this day. I'm sure he's busy, and I'm sure he'll get back with me eventually. 
But when people ask you, are you ready? Turn it around on them. Are you ready? Because what's happening today is um, we've so abused uh, the season and what it's turned into. It's not anything the way it's supposed to be. We all know that. But uh, we're here to just continue to make our way through God's word and just to make sure we're ready. You know, you, you think about it, and I, got, I know I got the last thing on here, Betty was. And all of a sudden, you just never know. When's your day? And will you be able to say, you know, I've run the race like Paul. I finished my course. And I can stand before you and tell, her, tell you she finished well. Not, no more pain, no more. Now all she's got is to look back on all those years. I've known her since 81, where she's just invested in the things that are really eternal. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and close in the word of prayer. Lord, we thank you as we make our way through the Bible that you've given us these wonderful promises. Thank you, Lord, that it's all about you and not about us. Help us be like Isaiah, who sense your presence and walk humbly before you. And really, Lord, the, the season is about you and just about really being ready. So I pray in closing this morning, anybody that is here or watching over the Internet, if you've never given your life to Christ and you've never opened your heart and realized that he was the one who was sent into the world to die for your sins, it's a free gift. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. But he wants to give it to you freely. Freely we have received. For those of us, Lord, who have received that gift, Lord, may we be exhorted in the same manner to give it out in the same way we received it, freely, with no other motive because we love you, not looking to get anything else out of it besides that. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.